Welcome to episode 19 of Turtle Talks with the Garden Crew, Happy Dancing Turtles bi-monthly podcast that focuses on gardening, nature, soil health, food systems, and pretty much anything else that falls under the title Sustainable Practices. This episode, you're in for a real treat. We were able to interview Sean Sherman, who's more famously known as the sous chef. Recent James Beard Award winner, Sherman is currently working hard to create opportunities for Native American communities who have lost their historical culture, all through the focus of making indigenous food more available. It's a great episode, and you can find out more about Sean's mission at souschef.com. Now, let's get rolling. And thank you for turning into Turtle Talk. Uh, my name is Colin McLean, and uh, I run the marketing up here at Happy Dancing Turtle. Sitting with me is Jim, Chris, Dave, and Allison. And with us, we have Sean Sherman. Now, he's famously known as the sous chef and is the founder of the nonprofit Natives, which stands for the North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. Sean's cookbook, The Sous Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, won a James Beard Award in, in 2018. Now, I want to start off with a uh, quote from Aldo Leopold. In his book, uh, Sand County Almanac, he states, there are two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. One is the danger of supposing that breakfast comes from the grocery and the other that heat comes from the furnace. Um, I mean, so that's, I mean, that's why we invited you here, Sean, um, on Turtle Talks, because we feel that there's, there's a connection missing from our food today. Um, you know, the grocery store has, I mean, it's convenient, but when most people go in there, they're not going to say, okay, this is this came from a farmer, this came from down the road. It's convenient, but you lose that connection. So in Sean's case, he's looking to rebuild the cultural heritage and reestablish a historical food shed. Uh, but this food shed will provide a market and a desire to eat what is fresh and indigenous to our natural environment. So what led you to this work? Well, you know, it was kind of a, a long path and I had kind of always been on it in various parts, um, but I didn't really realize it until quite a few years back. Um, I was a chef in the city of Minneapolis, where I'm still residing today, and I'd been doing the chef gig for a few years. I spent my entire life working in restaurants, it felt like, because I started working in restaurants at the age of 13. Um, my mom had uh, moved my sister and I off the reservation well, right before I started high school and college, and I just kind of jumped into working right away. And, you know, once I, after high school and college, I moved to Minneapolis, got my first uh you know, just started working in restaurants, I continued to work in restaurants, and got my first chef position when I was barely 27. Um, and in Minneapolis had a pretty good food scene back then. We were just starting to explore the farm-to-table movement. So mm -hmm. back then there was just a handful of restaurants trying to figure out how to get the food directly from the farmers and ranchers around us into the cities and into the restaurants. Um, and it's been great to, you know, be a part of that at those beginning stages and to really watch it flourish over the past couple decades. Um, but a few years into that chef career, I had that epiphany moment of, you know, just realizing that there were no Native American restaurants out there. And, you know, I can find food from all over the world walking around and nothing that was representing the land that we we're standing on and the history and the people that were still here. Right. And it was also striking for me to realize that um, growing up on Pine Ridge Reservation, um, you know, I was born in 1974, and it hadn't even been 100 years at that point in history since the Lakota had even lost the Black Hills to the U.S. government. Um, and realizing the very short history, but also realizing how much I didn't know about Lakota food. 
So I could only name a handful of recipes um, that I had found in various areas and things that I grew up with, you know, that seemed truly traditional and didn't contain cream of mushroom soup in the recipe. <laughs> right. That's what you, um, you, yeah, you find a Midwestern uh, potluck without it. You're, you're, you're exactly. Yeah, impossible. You know, looking at a lot of like, um, you know, I'd seen a few like local um, tribal cookbooks and stuff, and they really just sounded more like uh, Lutheran cookbooks to me, you know, <laughs> a lot of recipes clipped right out of Reader's Digest, basically. Um, but anyway, so it really kind of struck me and it shot me on this path that I'm on to really try to understand it. And, you know, um, also realizing there just wasn't a lot of comprehensive knowledge and I couldn't just go online and order Joy of Native American cooking to get that education. <laughs> So I had to, you know, really kind of search for it. And I really had this understanding and epiphany of, um, you know, how were people doing things? I wanted to know what they were doing before they'd seen European people and how are they surviving? Where were they getting, um, what kind of plants were they utilizing in the wild? And what kind of agriculture did they have if they had it? And, you know, were those seeds still around? And how are they preserving foods? And where were they getting salts and fats and sugars? And like all these kind of culinary perspective questions that I had started looking for. So I started reading a lot of fairly, you know, not exciting texts on ethnobotanical <laughs> um, studies of various regions and spending a lot more time outdoors and teaching myself how to identify plants and starting to utilize them in my cooking um, and really slowly building um, a base for the work that I'm doing today. Uh, of course, I talked to a lot of elders um, and, you know, there was a lot of information out there, but there was a lot of broken information out there also, which was really evident of the, you know, of what happens after the history of boarding school and residential schools and the assimilation efforts in the early 1900s sure. um, and how much knowledge was damaged during that time period. So really, you know, looking for hard facts of how people were surviving off of foods, um, starting to look at collections, historical collections. So, you know, I've been able to have good connections with, say, the Smithsonian Archives and uh, the Heard Museum and the Field Museum um, and <clears throat> the Minnesota Historical Society and various others and really start to be able to see some of these uh, pieces and collections that were you know, obvious, uh, beautiful clues to how people were utilizing food and really seeing that food was the center of everything because everything that they were doing, food was touching it somehow because there was, you know, um, farming implements and harvesting things and pots and bowls and spoons and cooking utensils and hunting and fishing and even the artwork, like everything was like centered around food, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so realizing like the immense diversity that was also out there across the board um you know it can be almost overwhelming you know so today just in federally recognized tribes there's 573 in the u.s and 622 in canada and mexico up to a, a entire fifth of the entire population still speaks indigenous language so realizing you know the historical aspects and trying to understand like why we all ended up where we are and why did you know growing up on pine ridge reservation in the 70s and 80s why didn't i know more about my indigenous foods and my ancestral foods and trying to piece that all together but you know playing with the foods in real time is what really helped us grow so developing a business that focused truly on regional indigenous foods um, really trying hard to cut out um, colonial ingredients just to prove that we can do it so removing things like dairy and wheat flour and processed cane sugar 
even beef, pork, and chicken, just to prove the point that there was plenty of other proteins out there and still out there. Um, and really, you know, starting to define what is an indigenous food system and how can you apply it to basically any region. So that's really, you know, the work that we've been doing and that's kind of what's been driving us. Yeah, getting your hands into those into those newly found recipes must have been rewarding, I would imagine, right? I mean, it, just to to kind of take a bite, so to speak, out of your history. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, at first we were um, uh, kind of stuck in that colonial thought process and perspective, and we were trying to create recipes using a lot of ratios that we'd find in, you know, um, European cookbooks because we were just kind of stuck in that, in that rut. And then once we realized that the food could be treated just simply as it is and we didn't really need to, um, utilizing any of those like French techniques or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and we literally started training ourselves from the ground upwards, you know. Along those lines, how do you source your ingredients? I mean, what do you look for in food procurement and gathering practices and land stewardship or um, producer yeah, mission? So, and I guess I'd, I'd like to add to that is that is the loss of our native ecosystems, is that a, is that a, does that affect your ability to do that? Most definitely, and you know, we really try to cook regionally, no matter where we might be, because we've had the opportunity to travel around um, the U.S., parts of Canada, Mexico, quite a bit, and to really do a deep dive into whatever land we're standing on, you know, and where can we source foods. So, you know, as far as the businesses go, you know, since we have a we have a catering business here in Minnesota, and we have a food truck, and we're about ready to, uh, we have two restaurant projects coming up, which we can talk about soon, but. Um, well, we you, can, you can talk about it now if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, we prioritize trying to purchase from indigenous vendors first because we really want to support that and we really want to play a role in helping to um, create a demand around indigenous foods. And we're hoping that more and more indigenous food producers will start to come around um, as, we, as we work really hard to continue to create a demand by opening it up to other peoples. Um, and we also purchase from a lot of non-Indigenous um, uh, partners around us who are growing out a lot of um, beautiful and clean food mm-hmm. in various, uh, you know, cooperatives and CSAs and things like that in our region and trying to stay, you know, keep really local. And we'll buy organic at the very bottom of the tier, you know, to fill in some pieces here and there um, on a commercial scale. But really, we just, you know, we want to support the Indigenous uh, food vendors that are out there already and producers and really help them grow and to start, you know, leading by example by showcasing all these beautiful things that we can do with this and showing the true value, especially with some of the produce pieces, like some of these wonderful heirloom squash and corns and beans and sunflowers and pieces like that, where there's, you know, they hold so much value because of this long story of how a lot of these seeds had survived, you know, this not only colonial push, but also assimilation efforts and destruction of environment and land. We also spend a lot of time outdoors, of course, throughout the growing season, you know, we're under a foot and a half of snow at this moment in Minnesota, so there's not much to forage except for some cedar and pine and uh, some scraggly sumac here and there. But, you know, in the summertime, it's from, from spring through summer and until the end of the harvest season into the fall, we work really hard to jump on to harvest what we can and to preserve it so we have it for the rest of the long year, um, much like our ancestors did, um, and to really, you know, think about that um, saving and being resourceful with what's around us um, and make that a huge part of it. But it's true that a lot of land has been extremely damaged. You know, we're living in an area where 
Minnesota still has a lot of wonderful lakes and forests, but a lot of this is fairly new growth uh, because of the mass deforestation that was happening in the late 1800s sure. throughout the whole stretch. And things definitely have changed in the introduction of many different kinds of plant species. And, you know, um, you know, some of those introdu- introduced plant species, you know, we don't really draw too hard of a line on, so we don't, like, you know, not use dandelion because it hasn't been here for forever, but more look at plants with the indigenous perspective and try to discern what is it best used for? Is it food? Is it medicine? Can you do something with it? And pretty much, you know, every time every plant has many options and uses for it. So we really try to utilize everything that's around us in modern and in the modern world that we have around us today and really kind of hold on to that perspective. When you create this, um, this, this, this little bubble within Minneapolis of your restaurant and, and the, the, the catering uh, company. I'm, I'm sure that you don't want to be known as, as the gimmick restaurant, right? You know, this is a Native American restaurant. I mean, you want people to enjoy the good food. How do you get beyond that? Yeah, you know, and we had a great test market because we have, well, we've had the catering operation open for four years now, and we had the food truck running for two years. Um, and it was a different concept, you know, even for Native American food for what the standard was at the moment, which was basically fry bread across the board, right? Right, right. So opening up a cool Native American uh, truck that was only going to use regional indigenous foods, primarily of Dakota and Ojibwe people, you know, from the Minnesota and Dakota territories, um, and cutting out all those colonial ingredients so there's no sodas or anything. And knowing that we weren't going to serve a single piece of fry bread, we, fry bread, we were worried that maybe we would just piss off every single Native community right away. That <laughs> right. <laughs> or not. But, you know, it actually worked out really well. And we just chose as culinary people to serve only healthy indigenous regional foods, mm-hmm. no matter where we are. We felt like it was kind of, you know, uh, you know, we're serving food to people and we want people to be happy and healthy. And, you know, ser- you know, just focusing on just healthy food was such a, a perfect way to try and lead by example, because, you know, of the obvious health epidemics that we have and disproportions in nutrition and health on tribal communities, you know, we need people to be really focused on how beautiful these healthy foods are for us. And we felt it was much more impactful to get people to think about eating traditional like their ancestors did instead of just telling them that they need to eat healthy if they want to have a good life, right? Right, it's just, right. That doesn't go very far because everybody knows they should eat a carrot over a Snickers bar. But, you know, <laughs> the other problem was was the food access issue because not all these communities even have access to anything outside of a gas station and commodity foods, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So it was addressing all these issues, um, and you're really trying to form our own path of what we wanted to do, which was more than just trying to open up a restaurant and become a fad for a small community, you know, in a Midwestern city like we are here in Minneapolis. So that's why we developed the nonprofit Natives or North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems because we have this plan to be able to hopefully stretch out all across North America um, and uh, impact it greatly. So to give you a quick rundown of that plan is basically we're this year that we're opening up our first brick and mortar, which will um, be a brand called the Indigenous Food Lab, which will be a part of our nonprofit um, 501c3. So it's a nonprofit restaurant, and it's developed to have a classroom structure where we can offer indigenous education to teach people about the knowledge of around food that their ancestors should have passed down to to us, that should have gotten to us, right? Yeah, that's so, wild. That's awesome. Think, 
Yeah, so it's pushing back on that um, assimilation period and boarding school education plan and really trying to return a lot of this ancestral knowledge that you know, was thousands of years of knowledge of how to live sustainably utilizing plants and animals around us. So we can offer classes on agriculture and seed saving and farming technique and food preservation and you know culinary application and history and the whole gamut of all those curriculums we've been slowly working on developing and becoming a resource for people to utilize that. The restaurant itself acts as a training center so people can work alongside us in the restaurant and we can train them how to work with this style of food, you know, um, so they can bring that skill set back to wherever they may be. Because our second goal for natives and the indigenous food lab is to work with the tribes around us to help them to start to develop some kind of food access in their community. So it could be something as small as a catering operation or a cafe or, or a full-scale restaurant. But we'll, we'll use ourselves as the indigenous food lab in the city as the, uh, as the place where they can get all their training. Uh, we'll, do all the, we'll help them with all the development and finding the funds to pull it off and being a support system. And we'll be constantly able to um, use that satellite location to send educators up to that community to open up economic doors if they want to start producing food and selling it through the network. So we have this vision of the Indigenous Food Lab in the city and the satellites around it and the tribal communities, and then taking that whole model and then moving that everywhere we can. So slowly opening up Indigenous Food Labs in cities all over North America, throughout the US, Canada, Alaska, even Mexico, and each one would do the same work to satellite around itself. So we're really kind of um, all focused on uh, indigenous education and indigenous food access um, and, and business development and support for those communities. Um, and, you know, we talk about cultural appropriation a lot, too, where, you know, it's not going to do a lot of good for non-indigenous peoples to start creating um, Native American restaurants just because it's a cool fad and to you know, capitalize off of it when it's not benefiting anybody in the indigenous communities, which is, you know, like this big push um, and fad of like uh, Mexican and Oaxacan cuisine we see now where there's a lot of non-obviously Oaxacan people (laughs) capitalizing off of this cuisine. But the last thing we need are like European uh, chefs basically Columbusing the whole (laughs) food program. We just want people to be allies and to support um, indigenous communities and to support indigenous growers and to really let the indigenous um, communities and chefs define what the foods mean to them particularly because even though like our group is indigenous we come from a whole bunch of different um, backgrounds and different tribes but we're not you know telling people how it is we're just uh, suggesting and giving people the opportunity and tools so they can start to define their own foods themselves sure i think there's a there's a, a lot that, as um, European descendants, I think there's a lot that we can learn from the Native Americans about that land connection. And, and like I talked about earlier with the, Aldo Leopold and, and the teachers in the forest, basically um, in his book, Teachers in the Forest, Barry Bob, Babcock talks about the, the creatures in the forest and the plants and the animals and how they can teach people to be more connected to the land, I think is what I got out of that book. And, and I think we have a lot, we have a lot to learn from, from your culture. <laughs> well, and we're diverse cultures all across the board, so we can't just lump sum everything. You know, we can't just define one piece of food as this is Native American cuisine because it's too diverse. You know, there's too many cultures out there. So mm-hmm. it's just like if you lump summed all European foods together, you can't really say, like, what's a taste of Europe because it's so diverse. <laughs> right, right, right. So, same thing in the Americas or anywhere. You know, we look at the whole world 
with indigenous cultures, Africa and India and Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, South America. It's all the same situation. Um, and we see, you know, we see the value in all of these different indigenous cultures around the world and that connection that they had to the to the world around them and the plants and the ecosystem around them and how valuable that is to create a more sustainable um, you know, world and a better food system. And plus, people were so resourceful and they just weren't throwing everything away like we do in our society today. So we like to talk, mm -hmm. you know, like, what if one grocery store just took the time to dry out fruits and vegetables, you know, something that simple before they went bad and how much stock of food they would have instead of just throwing it all in the garbage. You, you always find me here When the world thinks that I've disappeared You know just where to look You know just where to look And you, you have a heart of gold And I look forward to growing old Cause I'll be old with you I'll be old with you. Um, so, Sean, why should chefs care about where their food comes from, and, and what does that mean for their customers? Well, I think it's, you know, in the culinary world, it's, it's a huge push. So you see really famous restaurants like Noma in Copenhagen who really started to define in their own like what is Nordic cuisine, right? Mm -hmm. And how that thought process kind of shot around the world to different areas. So we see a lot of chefs taking interest in wild and foraged foods. But, you know, for us, it's, you know, it's a different perspective because it's not just about a fad. It's really about understanding how this food works before you just rip it all out of the earth, right? Mm -hmm. So we use uh, ramps as a great example because it's a very popular item in the spring. But we see everybody um, not really understanding how to harvest them because people just pull the whole plant out of the ground and wipe out entire hillsides of them, you know. And if you just took some of the tops and left a lot of those bulbs in the ground, then it would continue to flourish and grow even more. Mm -hmm. But it's just that lack of education around these pieces that can be really damaging to a lot of these natural foods around us. So we just think it's really important for people, for chefs, um, of course, to really understand the land that they're standing on. Because I've had a couple chef friends call me up and be like, "Hey, where can I get some Douglas fir? You know, we're in Minneapolis." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, I guess you can, you know, fly out to the West Coast. It's all over <laughs> out there." <laughs> right. I was like, "You can use like balsam fir. It's right close to us, and it's just as good." He's like, "Okay, where can I get that?" And I'm just like, um, outside. There's <laughs> 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 like, oh yeah, I guess I should go outside more. I am change, I am. You can't seem to find your So uh, if we had a chance to change our land stewardship legacy 
here in the northern plains of America, what do you think we should focus on? I mean, what does agricultural look like? Is it going to be, you know, the small micro farms, or do you think that there's room for the large industrial size to help uh, work with chefs and uh, uh, restaurants? Is, is there room for well, both, I wonder? You know, as a, as a best case scenario, so we see like some of these small indigenous communities around us, we have some communities that are really remote, you know, they the closest grocery store to them is 60 miles away. Uh, all they have is a gas station. They're surviving off the commodity food program, which has only caused, you know, a, couple, a few generations of health epidemics by itself, right? Sure. So the best case scenario to entice these people is number one, have this place in their community that can process and have the knowledge and education around indigenous foods to really, you know, you need a place, you need a, like a kitchen, right? It's just like a household kitchen is kind of a center place because it's someplace you process food, right? Um, so we feel like having that place that can process things is one step, but then also having the knowledge and the resources and the tools for them to grow out a community garden, um, hopefully with indigenous seeds that are particular to their region that would already grow well in the climate zone that they're in. But also just looking at a moderate, taking a modern look at the landscape around them and really starting to push for permaculture design and landscape with food um, as a focus, right? Sure. So getting rid of lawns, which are stupid and, uh, you know, wasteful resources like that are unresources basically, right? right. Um, just using the land for, for good. So, you know, we should be just putting food everywhere we absolutely can. And then making sure that the community is spending time to harvest things and then to preserve things. Um, and they would create a ton of food through those methods right there. And, you know, they could raise proteins easily. There's all sorts of stuff they could do. You know, there's, um, it, you know, we chose not to use beef, pork, and chicken more as a statement. Mm -hmm. But those proteins can easily be used in a sustainable fashion for that community. So ideally like you know um, those microsystems could really create a, a extremely sustainable um, system for people and it could create its own kind of like indigenous pantry out of it where people wouldn't have to worry about food because the community created a ton of it for themselves right so we want to slowly push um, with that in mind that we can you know, slowly helped bend people, hopefully, um, and, and impact health on a huge scale if we can get people to eat healthy like that. Um, but, you know, it's going to take a group effort because this was never about one person doing everything. It was really about understanding how the value of the community coming together to work on a problem, which could be, you know, food. Mm -hmm. and, and what you described, Sean, in my mind also speaks to not only healing people and, and feeding people healthy food, but also a healthy environment, uh, you know, more abundant wildlife and pollinators and clean water and, and, uh, and you know, like you speak to, healthy, vibrant communities. You know, yeah, so oh, yeah, it's all connected, that whole ecosystem and being a part of it on a whole. And, you know, this land, these lands that we're on could produce enough for all of us, but we would have to work together and stop, you know, being so centered around ourselves like you know we uh we, we we're so disconnected from ourselves you know like it's not like we go to our neighbors and be like you guys have enough food for the winter let us know because we're happy to help you you know like nobody does that for anybody you know um and that was something that you know people were communities were connected like that for a long time because i remember uh, my grandparents helping tons of people out um, because they had, um, you know, a, a cattle ranch on Pine Ridge and they had access to lots of beef. 
So they would, you know, trade a lot of food with people and help people out in a large scale. And it was important for people. I think it's really important for people to think about that. You know, food and education don't necessarily have have to have a monetary value. We could just work hard for our foods um, and work together to bring them. And education is as simple as just telling somebody something. You know, we don't have to go through all these hoops of, of offering education to people um, for for a massive amount of money. And that's the thing you see nowadays more and more is that well. Food is, 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 and feeding our families it might be the last thing we think of when we come into the door. You know, uh, I stopped by the KFC to, to, to grab a bucket of chicken, right? <laughs> and, and, and if we look at, you know, okay, what are, uh, if we put food first, and then that means that we kind of have to focus on, well, where's it coming from? How do I plan? And then you go from there, you know, maybe just have those steps in place first is, is what it sounds like you're saying. Step by step. Yeah. Yeah, it's really just kind of building that foundational system that can start to push because the best thing we can do, we're obviously not going to see a lot of a huge shift of change, um, you know, right away, but we can slowly start towards that. So we really look at doing all of this work for the next generation. So it's going to be those kids that we can set up because they're going to grow up, hopefully, knowing what their indigenous foods are, knowing about this wonderful connection to the plants and how valuable these seeds are, um, starting to really learn important things like uh, knowing how to identify plants and how to utilize them for foods and for medicines. You know, we can create... uh, you know, food pantries and medicinal pantries, um, utilizing just the food right around us and the food the community can grow. And it's just getting them set up. So it's just building those structures so they have those tools for their future. I, I do have one more question, you know, Sean. Um, for sure. When can I make a reservation for the food lab? Is that like this <laughs> week or later? Or? Yeah, well, we're working really hard on it. So, you know, restaurants are really expensive. You know, we did a really successful Kickstarter a couple of years back. Um, and we shot for 100,000. We ended up raising 150. But by the time we got everything out, we probably made about $60,000 off of that. Um, so, like this first project is, you know, it's looking to be closer to a million dollars, you know, for mm-hmm. everything. So we're just, uh, but you know, because of the nonprofit status, you know, we're working out and, you know, asking people to help us so we can find the funds to get started. And we're hoping to be able to pull the trigger on construction here very soon. Um, as we kind of wrap up our financing and hopefully we can have the doors open, you know, towards late summer before the end of the year. Um, Sean, uh, I don't know if this is going to make it in the podcast or not, <laughs> but we we saw you at the uh, the organic conference, the MDA organic conference, and you were the keynote speaker and um, Jim and Chris and I were there and I just want to thank you for speaking to that audience. Um I just was so, so sad that um, you had to stand up there and educate that group about, um, about Minnesota's history and the government's history, that um, we had to learn all of that from you before we could learn about your mission. And that, that really made me sad, but I just was so thankful that you were there and you spoke to that audience. I think that was really um something that that we all needed to hear 
Uh, well, thank you. And, you know, there's not a lot of pleasant histories out there, but there are, and, but there are a ton, there are a ton of great things to learn. And there's a ton of uh, such valuable knowledge and information um, and beautiful histories behind that, you know, and we see a lot of the same struggle with the African-American communities, yes. um, especially as they try to define what is African-American cuisine to themselves with, again, like a really murky history between the U.S. government and, right. and themselves. And we see a lot of parallel lines between that and how indigenous peoples have been treated also for um, too long and we are hoping to you know be role models and to lead by example as we kind of move into this new era of reclaiming a lot of our ancestors knowledge and applying it in real time and setting up our next generations for success. Jishan, thank you so much uh, for giving us uh, your time. We encourage you in your mission. All right, well, thank you so much, and thanks for having me on. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, thank so uh, thank you again for listening. This is uh, Turtle Talks with the Garden Crew. Um, if you have any more questions, please just let us know at info at happydancingturtle.org. Uh, we love your comments and suggestions. And if you do have any questions uh, about our uh, guest today, uh, let, us, uh, let us have it. You can find out more information uh, about Sean at suechef.org. Um, again, this is Colin, Jim, Chris, Dave, and Allison saying goodbye. Thanks a lot, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.